welcome to the Destiny Podcast. We hope this message blesses you. So, um, hell is is a topic that we talk all the time about as Christians, and yet we never really talk about it. Um, we talk about it as a consequence. We talk about it as something people will go and do, but we don't actually really talk about it. We don't sit down and go, right, okay, what does the Bible say about hell? What have we always believed about hell? What is the history of hell? What do we know about hell? What does hell look like? Where is it? When is it? All these different kind of questions. We don't really ask any of these questions. And and there's a really good reason why we don't ask these questions. Because in large part, most people don't know. They're just repeating what they're told. Um, Now, that's not to say they're wrong. It's just to say that they are maybe ignorantly right, (laughs) right? And so it's a, I've heard this being said, this is what I've been taught, and this is what I will repeat. And that's like much of our Christianity, right? So the exercise we did there where we walked through the Christmas story and I was asking you to tell me what the Christmas story was, you're repeating what you've heard, right? I mean, you're not repeating what Luke 2 says, you're repeating what you've heard and different bits. And some of what you've heard is really helpful. It adds to the story, it helps us understand the context. Some of it is not helpful because it actually deters from the story. Um, and in the same way, we often talk about the topics of hell and heaven and through the lens of what we've been taught, what we've understood, what's been passed down to us, what we heard in church, what our parents told us, you know, or what maybe even non-Christians say about hell. Like, you know, I mean, it, it's just what is culturally understood as hell. Um, there's probably not much difference from what the, the modern Western culture think of as a topic of hell. You ask a non-believer, what does hell look like? They'll probably give you the same answer as a Christian, mostly in the West. Um, and so what I want to do is I just want to have a little look at, we're going to look historically, what, what was hell? What was hell? Who talked about hell? Um, where, did, where did we find hell in the Bible? What does it mean? Um, and then we're going to look at it um, a, a little bit more modern. Um, so we're going to look at it from before Jesus, what, what do people believe about hell? In the time of Jesus, what do people believe about hell? What did his disciples think about hell? And then uh, what did the early church think about hell? And then more modernly, what do we think about hell? And you'll find that there's quite a broad spectrum of different beliefs at most of the times. Um, But what's interesting is actually if we go right back to the beginning, whatever beginning means, um, but when the the Bible is is being formed in Judaistic um, culture, there isn't really a very clear understanding of hell. In fact, there's not much of an understanding of afterlife, which is really interesting. And so what you'll find is for thousands and thousands of years, whether you were um, a a pagan believer or um, towards the end of those thousands and thousands of years, you were a Jewish person, you know, time of Abraham and and these guys um, starting the, the Jewish faith. The Jewish faith is just coming about there wasn't an understanding of the afterlife. They, they weren't fixated on what happened after death. They were more fixated of just putting off death. We don't want to die. But death was a very big, mysterious thing in the same way that most things were a mysterious thing, right? This is a very primitive society where they don't understand. They don't understand much about anything, you know? I mean, they don't understand why it rains, if the sun will come up tomorrow. These kind of questions are, are going on in this primitive society. They certainly don't understand death. We don't necessarily understand death still. You know, we don't understand all the different elements of, of what goes on in that. Um, it's still a mystery to us. What happens? I mean, even the most devout Christian, if you say, well, what happens after you die? Like, do you go straight to heaven or is this time? Or where's your soul? Where's your body? What happens to your body if it's rotten and full of maggots? So what if you get cremated? Well, when you get raised up, do you, have, do they, do you make a brand new body? Does everyone get a new body? Like, all these questions, most Christians go, uh, uh, well, well, uh, well, some people say this and something. I mean, that's the answer you're going to get. Not, there's not, very rarely is someone go, this is the answer. And typically, if that's what someone does, run away. Take it as one of the, this is what people say, but, but there isn't a clear cut um, bullet point description of the afterlife of heaven and hell. It, it's not really found in our Bible, never mind in society as a whole. It's, it's something that we have all, um, we think of ourselves as having always asked, like, what's next? But actually, it would appear that it hasn't always been at the forefront of what people are asking, what's next? The, the forefront of what people were asking right in, in most of um, historical man was, what is going on now? And how do I make sure life is good now? How do I make sure my kids are surviving? My wife is being fed. I am, you know, 
getting my crops to grow. I'm managing to have enough cattle so I can kill one and feed my family for the next couple of months. Like, these are the questions that, that people are asking. Um, and actually it takes quite a while before the question comes in of like, what's happened next? And actually it, we can track that sort of question coming about a lot more with uh, our civilization becoming a lot more civilized. So basically the world gets a lot safer. Uh, we start to have some concepts of medicine. We start to have some concepts of um, of community, of culture, of of agriculture, and, and and basically we can grow food more quickly and more effectively. We can stave off death through medicine, and and, and or at least this is still probably primitive medicine, you know. But but on some level we can we can take care of people and things like that, um, and all this stuff, basically, um, with with civilization comes thought. And so now I don't have to be thinking the whole time about how do I feed my kids? I can now buy food from the farmer. So what do I do? And this brings about people that become philosophers, thoughts, uh, you know, people that make it their living to be people that think and, and, and do their mulling over. And, and, and it brings about a, a, an increase in not just priests that were people that would sacrifice people to please the gods to figure out what we do just now, but people that would tell us about life and why we're here and what's going on and, and they start to ask bigger questions. Who am I? Why am I here? What's next? And that question, what's next, starts happening. And what's interesting is it's not that long ago that it happens. Um, and so you'll get very different um, dates on when that happens. And so I'm not going to give you a, a clear-cut date. I, I, I couldn't even begin to do that. But even in that, there doesn't seem to be this concept of um, of heaven and hell as we know it today. This just dualistic kind of, there's a good place we go or a bad place we go. There's, there, there seems to be um, a concept of being granted immortality. And this is common in a lot of different civilizations and it becomes quite common in Judaism, this being granted immortality. So David talks, Lord, I, I would ask that you grant me immortality. You grant me eternal life. And so eternal life isn't a given. It, it, it first comes into Judaistic thought um, it grabs a lot of the surrounding culture's thought that we are mortal. We don't live forever. We, we're not eternal beings. We, we live now, but God can give you immortality, give you eternal life that you might live beyond what is here and now. And, and that seems to be in some of the, the, the sort of median texts, so not the earliest texts, but as time goes on, people start talking about being given immortality, being granted afterlife. But it doesn't really talk about what that looks like. There's not really a concept to that. Now, there are a few places that we talk about. Um, there's a there's a concept of Sheol, which is the the death, the death, the dark place, the 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 darkness, the the underworld, and and it didn't have a concept of um, of suffering, of pain, of torture, of torment that we would associate with our our views of hell that we probably hold now. It was a place of nothing, of dead. You're dead. You're in the ground. It was. It was. A, it was a place of ceasing, and, and it was a horrible thought. But it was just was. And I think a lot of this comes with when you think about um, death in our culture. Um, we don't really have to deal with it, right? I mean, we have people that we love that die, and that's a painful, awful process. But we don't really have to deal with it, right? So very rarely does someone fall over dead right in front of us, and we've got to then figure out, okay, how do I like clean up their body, make them presentable, and then bury them in the ground somewhere. I'm gonna have to dig a hole for them. I mean, like back in the day, you dealt with death. Like you dealt with it. Like, you know, if your kid died, you had to like actually dig a hole, put him in the ground, and then put dirt on his face. You know I mean? Nowadays, we've got people that do that. You know, we've got an undertaker that uh, takes the body away and presents him and like prepares him and gets him in his suit. And you know, like, I mean, that's, that's someone else's job. And then the next time you see that dead person, they're, they're solemn, they're in their place, they look at peace, they've got a posed smile or what, do you know what I mean? Like, they, that's been made more palatable for us. And then we don't put them in the ground and chuck dirt on their face, you know what I mean? Like, they're put in a box, we don't really see them, and then they're put in the ground, and then we, we leave as they start like, you know, dealing with the, right, we're just gonna chuck dirt on this box and that's it, it's got, it's a very distanced kind of death. And I think when people were a lot more used to the realities of death, um, they were a lot more aware of this thing of like, this is not my husband anymore. This is not my son. This is, this is just a body. There's nothing to this person. Um, and so there was this concept of death you cease to be. Like they, they, they kind of, 
grabbed it in that sense. Whereas we tend to grab it in the sense of they're not here anymore, they've gone somewhere else. We, we tend not to process it as much. And so as, again, as civilization starts to develop and as, as, as we start outsourcing our dead relatives, uh, the processing of our dead relatives, we start to uh, distance the, the, the dead person to, they've gone somewhere else, there's something out there that they've gone. And we start creating this concept of like, there, there's, there's something in us that goes somewhere else when we die. Um, and, and again, there's a lot of um, debate as to where these kind of thoughts originate. They sort of spring up from all sorts of different cultures. Um, but the Jewish people started to grab a hold of this as well. And what's interesting is um, the Jewish people mostly grabbed a hold of the concept of um, these places that we go being a place called heaven where God dwelled and hell, which was a place of um, pain, suffering. It was not where God dwelt kind of thing, or at least it was not a good place if God was there. Um, you didn't see God's good side. If he was there, it was not fun. Um, and so they, they started to create these two concepts um, much nearer, um, sort of around 400 BC, sort of that sort of time frame. And so it's quite late. You, you, you go, wow, most of the Old Testament is written by that point. And that's why when you read the Old Testament, there's no mention of hell. There's two passages in the whole Old Testament that mention hell. And that might, seem like, whoa, really? Just two passages. You've got Daniel and Isaiah. So Daniel 12, 2 and Isaiah, I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, so again, they talk about Shoal, the place of the dead, this, this, this place that, cease, that you cease and go to. But it's interesting that even in that, David says, well, even if I go to the depths of Shoal, you're there. So it's not, a, they don't have a concept of it being a place that God isn't, or, or, or it's a place of punishment or anything like that, because that's a comforting thought to him. Even when I die and I cease to exist on some level, you'll be there. Like, it's, it's not a, you'll be there to beat me up and punish me, or, you know, like, you'll be there. Um, and so, this thought, so, so the thought of heaven probably, um, it, it, it would imagine, it seems that heaven comes before the concept of hell. Hell is even later than heaven. So we, we, because because we we don't really want to think of our dead people in hell, right? So like that's a kind of obvious given, right? So if we're starting to think of what happens to these people that go f from us, that, that that leave us, we like to think of the fact that they've gone somewhere nice and good, and they, they're with the gods, they're with God in, in Judaism, you know, this this concept. But a little bit later, again, dates and times and facts and figures are very hard with something that's such a broad topic that transcends cultures and all these different things. But we, we find that um, around sort of 400 BC, um, this is kind of where the Zoroastrians were the first people that um, kind of, they, they got a lot of that sort of Plutonic thought, like uh, Platonic thought, sorry, um, where there was like the good and the bad, and there's this perfect good and this perfect bad. Um, and that there's spiritual and natural and, and you know, these kind of divides. And so they, they created the, the concept that there was a war in the heavens. And this is how they explained evil. So that there is God who is all good and the gods who are all good. And then there's the bad, the all bad people uh, are all the bad uh, gods. And they were at war with each other at all times. And before, we talked about this before, but before in, in earlier thought, the gods were, uh, in, and this is in paganism, the gods were sometimes good, sometimes bad, but they kind of switched sides, and they had mood swings and different things like that. But very rarely was a god always pure and good and you could trust that he was always going to be good because sometimes he just seemed to change his mind and become not so good, you know, if you annoyed him or did something. Um, and so this is why Judaism was such a rare uh, concept because our God was good inherently in himself absolutely good and pure um, and and so what we did was as as the Jewish uh, religion um, developed is we start still asking well why do bad things happen if God is always good and good and yet he's all-powerful like why is all this bad stuff happening um, and we sh shifted the blame from ourselves and we said it's got to be Satan and so we grabbed this kind of two worlds warring with one another. So we created quite a powerful Satan that was warring with God and sometimes we won. And in that, we also grabbed some of the theology they had of the afterlife. So there's a heaven up there and a hell up there. And so this place where all the bad people are that are fighting the war, that's where bad people go afterwards. And this place where the good gods are, that's where good people go. And we, we rewrote um, how we interpret our gods to fit with this kind of concept, that there is going to be an afterlife, that 
and, and so the blessings that God promises, if you do this, you do this, you do this, you will be blessed, become, if you do this, you do this, you do this, you'll be blessed and you get to go to heaven. And the, the, the warnings he warns, if you don't do this and you don't do that, you'll be cursed, become, well, if you don't do this and you don't do that, you'll become cursed and you'll end up in hell. And so this becomes quite the common thought, I mean, a very, very prevalent thought in much of um, Jewish thought by the time Jesus comes on the scene, because this starts to come in around 400 BC. So it's, they've got 400 years to develop this kind of line of thought and, and, and thinking. Um, and so it's very, very common for people to think um, that there is a hell, you will go there if you're bad, versus there is a heaven, you will go there if you're good. Now, let me say this, if you're starting to like, kind of like go, wait, what is going on? Are you like telling me there's no hell or anything? I'm not saying that at all. I'm just kind of giving you a rough idea of what we know of how civilization has processed this question of what is next, what is in the afterlife. Now, we know there's a lot of stuff that civilization processed where they were wrong. And it's taken a long time before we go, oh wait, they're completely wrong. The earth is round. <laughs> you know, it doesn't revolve around, uh, the, the sun doesn't revolve around the earth, it revolves around the sun. Or simple things like, um, oh, uh, you know, Water doesn't just magically fall out of the sky for no reason. Actually, it's got to do with you know different things, evaporation, condensation, you know, all this different stuff. And so, you know, it, it's a process of learning. And so, it's not that hell is wrong because it didn't exist ten thousand years ago because God didn't say anything about it. God didn't say things about stop being a slave owner. It still doesn't mean he wanted slaves, right? He he just brought them gradually into things, saying, hey. Actually, I'd quite like you to release your slaves every six years, you know? And then eventually it's, it's a bit more like, okay, no more slaves now, okay? <laughs> right? And, and so it doesn't mean that because there wasn't a hell uh, in their thinking, and then there becomes a hell, that they've just made it up. And maybe they're right, right? Because they, they, they've been proved right about many things as they progress, right? In the same way that human sacrifice was okay, and then they progress and go, actually, we're not going to kill any more people. That was a good evolution, a good progression. And so the concept of a heaven and hell, just because it's a later thought and doesn't exist in the earliest um, teachings of Judaism, doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, okay? So I'm not telling you there's no heaven, I'm not telling you there's no hell, okay? You guys clear on that? Because I don't want you to think like, oh, so there's just none, no, 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 that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just kind of give you this historical background. But what it does mean is that this is the common thought um, by the time Jesus comes along, people do. They believe in an afterlife with a heaven and a hell. Um, and I believe in an afterlife, okay? So uh, again, I'm not trying to un unravel or anything like that. But, but what it does mean is that they, they have a very particular view of it that has been formed by culture. Like this, this hasn't been given to them by God. It's not like God shows up and says, all right guys, now let me line out what's next and let me line out how you get there, right? Because he doesn't, he doesn't in the Old Testament say, if you do this, you will be given eternal life in a good sense. And if you do that, you'll be given eternal life in a negative sense. There's not this clear, perfect cookie cutter outline that we have nowadays as, as Christians, we have a bit more of a clear cut because Jesus comes along and he says, right, well, this is eternal life. Let me tell you what eternal life is now. Let me tell you um, what it looks like to be in eternal life. Can we deal with questions at the end? Is that all right? Or if you jot it down, sorry. Um, but. I think that's really important that we understand that Jesus is coming in and he's not always going to um, partner with what they, what they say about the afterlife in the same way that he doesn't always partner about what they say about the law or what they say about you know, who God is. He often goes, actually, it's a bit more like this or actually, it's a bit more like that. Um, and so it's really important that we understand that Jesus is not coming um, and to, um, He's not always going to back up everything that they have to say about that. And, and you know, there's many times that um, people will talk about hell um, and they'll say, well, Jesus mentions hell a lot. But actually, when we look at it, Jesus doesn't mention hell nearly as much as we think in the context at which we mean hell. And so, again, we have to remember that this is an ongoing evolution of hell. And so what um, we understand to be hell is this place you go when you die and you burn and you're tormented and you're tortured. But oftentimes when Jesus um, talks about hell, if you look in your Bible and you see the word hell, you'll most often see a little number there or a little star. And if you look down, it says literally, literally Gehenna or the Valley of Hinnom. And, it, and, and it's literally meaning Gehenna, this place or a Valley of Hinnom. It's the word that Jesus would have said there is he says, look, watch out guys. If you don't stop on your violent trajectory, there's gonna be weeping and gnashing of teeth and you'll be cast into the Valley of Hinnom or Gehenna. He's not saying 
watch out guys, if you don't stop and clean up your act, you'll go to hell one day. He's saying, hey, you're gonna get cast into this valley, this Gehenna. So it's important that we look at the context of what is Gehenna, what is the Valley of Hinnom? And, and what it is, is actually it's a, it's a place right there in Jerusalem, in the same way that if I said, um, hey, watch out guys, if you don't sort yourself out, you're gonna end up over in that town over there, Liverpool, right? And we go, well, wait, what does that mean, right? And you think, well, I don't wanna be in Liverpool, right? Or maybe you think, oh, that'd be great. Um, but for these guys, that meant something. He was like, you're gonna go there. And this valley has a history of fire, of burning, of, of awful, terrible stuff. Um, it was used, uh, the valley was used um, to sacrifice children back in uh, Jeremiah's day. It talks about how they, they sacrificed and they burnt up children as, as burnt offerings. Um, it was uh, used as a place of uh, torment, of suffering. It was used as a place of judgment. God judged Israel and, and cast some of their people into the valley of him and they, they burned and they were suffered. Um, and so it's got this consistent um, record of torment, of judgment, of God judging. Um, and so it is about God judging, it would seem. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's about an afterlife. It could just be a metaphor of, look, if you don't do this, you're going to end up with the fiery judgment of God on you. Um, and not even necessarily always the fiery judgment of God. At times it was judgment from the Babylonians. It was judgment from themselves. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of depth to this again. So again, I'm, I'm saying this not to take away that it could be hell, but I'm saying it could be other things as well, okay? So don't just jump on it and say, this has to be hell. There's a reason it has that little number there or star and says literally Valley of Hinnom or Gehenna. Um, it's because it could also be that because that's what it literally means. So it could literally be that talking about prophetically a place called hell, or it could actually be that it's talking about that as a, as a place, a practical physical place. Um, and so, um, just good to know, okay? Really good, practical, helpful information. Now, Jesus does talk about how he gives us analogies. He says, you know, um, he talks about Lazarus. Remember Lazarus? He goes uh, um, up, uh, gosh, my brain is not working at all. But he goes up into heaven and he sees the, uh, across the, the, the chasm person. Uh, exactly, yes. My brain is like not working with that at all. Um, and, and, it's, and it's awful, and he's like, oh, but you know, like, he's, he's begging for water, and he's like, can I give him, no, no, there's no point. And, and then it, it, the whole thing is, is this judgment, this, this horrible situation versus a good situation, and, and it feeds into these, these concepts of heaven and hell, doesn't it? And so there's stuff there, but again, there's other ways to interpret that. And I will say this, which, which is fascinating, is we often lean on that analogy to support our hell, but what's interesting is, God tells, uh, tells him, isn't he? He says, look, even if you go back and warn everyone you know, it won't do any good. So I often am bemused by people that have near-death experiences, go to hell, have this horrible experience of hell, and then come back and warn everyone, and they get saved. And I'm like, like Jesus said explicitly that's not going to work. And I'm like, what does that even mean, right? So it's quite fascinating. Like, and so, but there's, there's, there's stories told about hell that might mean hell and might mean something else in the same way that the story is about other things. I mean, it's a parable, right? So I don't know, we don't look at any other parables and go, that's exactly the way the world works, right? We, we go, oh, it's a parable. So I think it's dangerous for us to think that there's a heaven where you unlook hell. And is that really heaven, watching your loved ones burn in torment? I mean, it sounds quite a terrible version of hell, uh, heaven. Um, but yeah, so uh, we're not discrediting that Jesus mentions hell. The apostles mention, um, uh, figuratively and, and touch upon the concepts of hell and certainly touch upon the concepts of afterlife. And so they also carried forth. So it's not like Jesus came and taught them and then they all went, right, okay, so there's no afterlife or there's no hell and there's only a heaven or there's no heaven and there's only, right? Things went on. After Jesus, the apostles seemed to continue believing in the afterlife. And so it, to me, it doesn't seem that Jesus came and said, actually, what you've created as a theology here of afterlife is wrong, okay? And I think that's quite important because as we were talking about, there, there didn't seem to be much of a concept of afterlife and then they evolved to, I think there's an afterlife and then they evolved to this a good and bad afterlife. When Jesus came, he didn't seem to say, no, you're wrong. And I think that's quite important, right? Because that's the culture that they're in. Um, now, there, there is some arguments that maybe he did unravel some of their beliefs about what heaven looks like or what hell looks like, or certainly he definitely unraveled who goes there, right? The con if you believe that he's talking about 
future heaven and future hell. He certainly messed with their concepts of who gets to go um, because he talked to sinners and told them they'd be okay and they'd be saved. And he tells some of the Pharisees that they're doomed, you know? And so um, he's, he's really messing with certainly their concepts of who gets to go there uh, if he's completely leaving the, the concept of the afterlife alone. Um, and so the apostles, they seem to believe and hold to uh, a belief one or another of, um, of an afterlife that includes a heaven and a hell. Um, and as church history progresses, there is also this belief in an afterlife. We don't see a point where the church goes, actually, no, this is not right. There's no heaven and there's no hell. There's, there's something after. This has always been kind of taught in orthodoxy. Um, but what is interesting is, and, and this is where we're going to get to the meat of this, okay? This is where we're going to get to what actually uh, is, is really important, is that there is not a consensus, either in the Bible or after the Bible, that hell looks like this. There just isn't. Um, and so let me give you a few verses, okay, um, that support some different concepts of hell. And so I'll give you the three overview um, versions of hell, okay? And within these three views, these three views have kind of been held on some level as long as there's been a hell, okay? So as long as we've had an idea of hell, there's been these views. And certainly within the church, Christianity has always allowed for these three views of, of hell, okay? You have the first view, which is going to sound the most familiar to you, which is eternal conscious torment, okay? Which is you say the prayer, you go to heaven. You don't say the prayer, you go to hell. And for eternity, you will be tortured and punished and it will be horrible and painful and hot and fiery and not very nice, okay? And so that's basically what most of us have probably been exposed to in the West and evangelical Christianity um, is that hell, bad, forever, not fun. Um, the other view um, that, that is fairly similar is a view called annihilationism. And annihilationism is um, related in one sense in that there are two very polar different realities. There, there is um, there's heaven where you will eternally, if you again say the prayer or do the right thing, um, you get to go to heaven and you spend eternity with God, with Jesus, with all the other people that, that ticked the right box or did whatever it was that got you saved. But Annihilationism believes that if you don't do that, you cease to exist. Now, there's a few different varieties within that. Some believe you'll be punished for a just time. So if you were just a really, really bad person, you might get punished for 100 years, and then you cease to exist. God just snuffs you out and wipes you out. If you were Hitler, maybe you suffer for 2,000 years because you did really bad stuff. And so you suffer for a long time, and then you snuffed out. And, and, and the, there's, a lot of, um, there's a lot of validity in that view. Again, very, very um, openly accepted view within even modern Christianity. That's a very accepted view within a lot of evangelical um, Christianity. Um, what you'll find is there's an, actually a third view that has historically always been um, held with the other two in tension throughout the church. People have believed all three of these. It's only in more modern times as we've got more um, rigid on it being about our beliefs, about the rightness and the wrongness of the gospel, really mostly around the time of the Reformation, um, where we got rather rigid on this is what hell looks like, that we started to really push against this third option. And this third option is, is called um, ultimate reconciliation or Christian universalism, it's sometimes known as. And it's different from universalism. So universalism would believe that all roads lead to God, it's all good, you just do whatever you do and you're gonna be with God for eternity. Christian universalism is similar, um, but it is different in the sense that they say, well, all roads don't lead to God, Jesus is the only way, but Jesus is gonna get you whether you like it or not. And so it, it puts the emphasis on God's doing the saving rather than mankind choosing to be saved or, or, or doing, the, basically there's less of the, are you ticking the box and more God has ticked your box for you and he's gonna figure it out one way or another. Now it's not prescriptive on what that looks like. It can be very varied. And so actually, whilst the other two are a bit more minute, so the eternal torment is very clear. Annihilationism is a bit more open. Maybe you'll suffer for a bit and then get snuffed out. Maybe you just get snuffed out completely. 
Um, and that actually kind of ties into that, that Jewish thought of like being granted immortality. So you're not immortal, you die and you were a bad person, you just you suffer, you're done, you're gone, whatever. Um, or on some level you're raised up and then go, no, and stuff that that's even harsher in some ways, right? Um, but but to some will be granted immortality. So like so that conditional immortality, which was a kind of mid uh, thought within uh, Jewish uh, understanding of the afterlife. Um, but this this understanding of, of ultimate reconciliation, the key word here is ultimate. It, it's that at some point we're going to get there. Okay, so um, it would almost look at it as a spectrum. Where, where heaven is here, where God is here, and you, you will get there. You will get to the place where God is, he's always loving, always accepting. He has never wanted anything but union with you, oneness with you, but you don't. And that is a, an issue, and that is a reality. And so ultimate reconciliation and Christian universalists, very few of them deny the existence of a hell. Almost all of them would say, yes, hell is a real uh, thing. Now, some of them will, change uh, based on what their description of that looks like. So some of them might say it is a process of being punished and judged and, and, and experienced in torment, um, but so that you might be restored, so that you might turn about, so that you might repent, so that you might turn and turn to your father and go, you love me, you accept me, I, I want what you're offering me. Others would say that that's more of a, a, a the hell is more of a, a suffering in our own of choosing to be um, to be separate from God and, and suffering the consequences of, of being separate from God, turning our back on God and God is standing there with his arms wide open. We're looking the other way going, there is no God, there is no God and experiencing the torment and agony of, of nothingness without God. Um, uh, others would say that um, perhaps uh, heaven and hell are the same place. And, and there's a lot of um, really well-respected theologians that, that have taught this. Um, a good example might be C.S. Lewis, who we really love as Christians. I mean, great guy, incredible works of, of writing. He has quite a few different um, topics on it. And one of his most famous books would be The Great Divorce, where at the beginning he does he gives this like little thing where he says, please know that this is not what heaven and hell looks like. I'm not saying this is what heaven and hell looks like, but he kind of outs himself by the end of it, where he's basically saying, but I kind of do think this is probably what it's going to be like. Um, and actually in his other books, he really outs himself. So things like The Last Battle really outs himself as, as believing heaven and hell being the same place, but very different realities. Um, and so they would say something along the lines of, um, Heaven and hell are being in the presence of God, but you have a very different capacity to experience it. And so they would cite something like, if you look at the Old Testament, what happens when God shows up? There's one of two reactions. Either you go, wow, God is awesome, this is amazing, and you rip off your clothes and start dancing naked in the street, or you, know, or you do all these amazing things that people did at times when God showed up. Or sometimes God showed up and people were like, freaked out, right? I mean, they're like on the floor and they're ripping their clothes off for different reasons because they're pouring ash on their heads and they're going, God, depart from me. I'm wicked. I'm sinful. I can't be in your presence, right? I mean, very different reality. And, and they would argue that someone who does not understand and accept, I am loved, I'm accepted, they do not see God as good, will experience God's presence as a very awful, terrifying thing compared to someone who knows this is my daddy. If you think he's this judge who's going to punish you for doing all these bad things, if you have this totally warped perspective of him, it's going to be a very different reaction. But their point would be, God is not going to change. So even in that, even here, he's still going to be screaming at you, trying to get your attention, going, I love you. I'm not wanting to punish you. I don't want to hurt you. You don't have to be crying and fearful in the corner. In the same way that in the Old Testament, when, people, when God shows up and people went, ah, God, depart from me. I'm too wicked. I'm too sinful. How did God reply? He always went, do not fear. Right? And, and so it, it, that would be their view. And, and there's a few different concepts of that. Again, C.S. Lewis has got some great imagery on it. And, and in The Last Battle, I don't know if you guys have read the Chronicles of Narnia, in The Last Battle, this um, epic battle, and, and right in the midst of it, it doesn't get to finish, does it? God just goes and sucks everyone up to heaven. But the key word being, he sucks everyone up. Like, it's totally bizarre because all of a sudden they're in this amazing meadow and Aslan is there and they're talking to Aslan like, Aslan, what happened? And he's like, oh, this is it. We're done. Like, we're in a totally new era. This is heaven. This is amazing. They're looking around like, this is astonishing. It's amazing. And in the midst of it, there were dwarves who on the earth 
or well, on the earth, in Narnia, said there is no Aslan. There's no such thing as Aslan. It's a fable. It's a myth. That's for like crazy people that believe in fairy tales. No such thing as Aslan. And they locked themselves in a like bunker, like a shed it, it was, but it's more like it's kind of bunker. When the, when the war went on, they just locked themselves in. They didn't want anything to do with anything about Aslan. They didn't care. They were like, this is nonsense. We're not even going to fight in this battle. Um, so they're in this dark bunker, hunkered down, going, there is no God, and we're just going to hide and wait for this war to blow over. They get sucked up to heaven as well. And so while the kids are talking to Aslan and going, God, Aslan, wow, this is amazing. What's going on? How, like, why are we here? Why, yours is so great. This is amazing. At the time, all the dwarves are sitting on the floor in the middle of this meadow, in the middle of a glorious sunny day, overlooking lakes and mountains. And I mean, it's just, it's heaven, right? And it's glorious. And they're sitting on the floor and they're going, hey, stop, stop. Who's that moving around, kicking dirt on me? Stop. I can't see in here. It's disgusting. It's dark. And, and, and they don't know where they are. And so the imagery he's painting here is that if you are blind, you're blind. You need someone to open your eyes. It doesn't matter where you are, you're experiencing the same darkness. And, and so that would be a concept as well that's in there of, of heaven and hell being the same place, but there is this, this hope that this, in the presence of God that, that you would turn around and you would eventually warm and, and come into his embrace. Now, in the same context, that's a, a, a theology within eternal torment as well, right? So there's a heaven and hell are the same place and you're suffering in the presence of God, but it's forever, okay? So it's not... You know, so I'm, I'm just giving you in the context of, of a, a more uh, ultimate reconciliation Christian universalism view. Um, the final view, and, and this would be, um, this is quite common, not common, I would say, but, but it's, it's found quite often in um, Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox kind of religion, um, would be that heaven and hell um, are primarily realities now. And that they are in the future, but actually they are taken care of now, and they actually just mirror what the future looks like. And so they would say something along the lines of, look, right now people are experiencing heaven, right now people are experiencing hell. And I think all of us would agree with that on some level. You know, we all know someone that is dying of cancer, and we go, that's hell, right? I mean, that, that is even slightly good. It's just hell. Um, it's an awful, terrible experience. And, and you know what? At the same time, there's, there's a newborn mother who has a child and it's exciting and that, that's heaven. It's the, it's the most amazing experience you can have. Or you know, someone gets married or, you know, or whatever, their kids go off to college or all these exciting, amazing things can be heaven. Or maybe that person that's dying of ha ha cancer in hell gets healed on the spot and is now in heaven, right? I mean, so, and, and this is what Jesus talks about, of, of, of bringing heaven to earth, of, of pulling people out of this, this reality of pain, of suffering into a very real living heaven now. Um, and, and there is a very real concept of eternal life starts now. You know, Jesus doesn't give people eternal life and they fall over dead and they disappear, right? I mean, they don't just go to heaven. And we don't at church go, right, come forward and get saved. You say the prayer, you sure? Okay. <laughs> You know, we don't just kill people after they say a prayer. But honestly, if that's all it's about is going to heaven or going to hell, we might as well, right? Just get it over and done with. Get them off there. No point living here. And, and so, but Jesus is very real, tangible. Let's do stuff now. Let's make this place better now. Um, and he talks about people being dead now and alive now, right? So he talks about people being alive now. And he talks about let the dead bury the dead. Well, he's not meaning like, like leave them in a big pile and they'll sort themselves out, right? He's saying... Some people that are not following me are dead. They're not living. They're dead. They can deal with dead people. We're dealing with alive people. And so there's a concept of you can be dead but still alive. And you can be alive but still very dead. Right? Is that the same thing I just said? Sorry. Um, but, and, and you can be dead but still have life. You can be, and so there's a concept of the after element of that as well. Um, so this, this concept of people experiencing heaven and hell now, when, when we experience hell, it's suffering, it's painful, it's, it's, it's awful, but oftentimes it's, um, it's, it's these awful things that happen, but sometimes we experience hell in the process of growth, okay? And so this is where it would be more of the Eastern Orthodox view would be, how many of you have had God say something to you and it didn't feel great? And you were like, oh my gosh, this is gonna be work, right? And he says, hey, you're really selfish. I think we should work on that. And you think, oh, crap, right? You ever think that? And you're just like, 
this is going to be not fun, right? Because it's not fun when you start realizing, oh, I need to work on some stuff and I need to grow. And, and it's not like, you know, condemning, like, how terrible are you, sort yourself out. It's a, hey, you're not who you truly are. Let's get you there. But it's a painful process and journey. And so they would use um, kind of scriptures again that, I mean, we, we have to remember that fire, if, if there's anything, and a lot of people say, well, hell is, is we, we choose to go to hell. God doesn't send anyone to hell. But actually, if you're going to be honest, nowhere in the Bible does anyone go, oh, the lake of fire? Right, I'm off to jump in that. You got it, right? God throws people into the lake of fire. The fire proceeds from the mouth of God, right? I mean, it proceeds from God. Like, God's doing the, the fiery stuff, not us. Um, and so if we are going to be honest with Scripture, I mean, that's what's happening. Um, and so they would say, well, actually, yes, but that's not to punish, that's not to suffer. There might be suffering in it, but it's always restorative because God's justice is restorative. And so God pours out fire, but he does it so that all the wheat and chaff and rubble burns away and all that's left is stone, uh, gold and silver and jewels. And now we like to think of that as God pours out fire and all the crappy non-believers burn off and all the good believers are left. And that's maybe an interpretation, right? Maybe that is eternal torment and, you know, uh, glorious, lovely heaven for those Christians. But also, um, it could be used for this universal reconciliation view that actually we all go through this process of hell, of being refined, of, of processing, of growing, and we come out the other sides into heaven. Um, and so they would say that's a process that we experience on, on earth, and therefore, um, in the afterlife, what is to say that we don't go through a similar process that we still have journeying to go, we still have process to, to work through. And again, that's not a, an Eastern Orthodox view, it's just I have encountered quite a few people of Eastern Orthodox background that believe that. And so, but I've also encountered people within other uh, backgrounds, much more regular Western um, denominations that also believe things like that. So you've got these three kind of views and it leaves us kind of going, well, which is it? Right? I mean, is that what you're thinking? Well, just tell me which one is right. And the problem is, what I'll do is I'll give you the Bible verses, okay? Because then you'll be able to tell what's right, okay? So, obviously, eternal torment is pretty right because we have um, Isaiah 66, 24, okay? Where bodies are riddled with everlasting worms and eternally on fire. You've got Daniel 12, 2, where people were awoken to everlasting contempt and death. There's Matthew 5.22, where there's a hell uh, of fire. 5.22. Um, I can give you this list afterwards if you want. Uh, Matthew 5.29 to 30, where they're cast into hell. Um, Matthew 13.38-42, where they're gathered up and burned up. Um, Matthew 13.49-50, uh, through 50, the end of the world, they'll be cast into a furnace of fire and they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, Matthew 25, 31 to 46, depart from me into the eternal fire. Um, Matthew 25, 46, there's eternal punishment. Uh, Mark 9, 43, 45, Luke 12, uh, 5, Luke 16, 19, 26 through 26. There's, there's a lot in there that says, I mean, eternal punishment. That's the one, right? Except there's also annihilationism has a equal big list of things. And so if you think that the argument of annihilationism is um, a lot of the language in the Bible is destroyed, um, is um, perish. Uh, and, and you think, well, how can something perish forever? How can something be destroyed forever? You know, I mean, if you give me your phone, I couldn't destroy it for longer than <laughs> like maybe 10 minutes or something. But after a while, it's destroyed. You know, I, I'm not going to be here three weeks later still destroying it. Destroyed is a finite, like, thought. And so the annihilationists would, would look at a lot of verses and go, well, it seems like there's an end for some people. And so Matthew 7, 13, says destruction. Matthew 10, 28, destroy both body and soul in hell. Matthew 19, 29 through 30, uh, you inherit eternal life. So the concept of, like, you know, you don't get it by default. Some people get given uh, eternal life. Uh, John 3, 16, our favorite verse, the perish. Uh, John 3, 36, not see life. So they won't see the afterlife. Um, John 4, 14, if you believe, you'll be given eternal life. Um, John 5, 24, from death to life. John 6, 40, raise up to life. John 6, 47, if you believe, you'll be granted eternal life. Uh, John 6, 54, John 6, 68, it's quite a consistent theme in John 6. John 10, 28, those who don't believe will perish. 
Um, Romans 5, 21, righteousness to eternal life. You'll, you'll be given eternal life if you have righteousness. And so there's quite a few verses there that seem to suggest, okay, there'll be an end and, and people will cease. Um, and what you find is, are you picking up a theme that both of those um, uh, theories, the majority of their Bible verses are found in the Gospels, okay? So they're not in the Old Testament. Eternal torment has a couple in the Old Testament, but they're mostly found in the Gospels. They're mostly found in the teachings and, and area of Jesus. And what you find is um, the concept of universalism, there's, there's a couple of bits in the Gospel, but most of it then is found in the teachings of the apostles. Because believe it or not, ultimate reconciliation, universalism, they also have a whole bunch of Bible verses, okay? And what's the problem with the Bible is we just pull out a Bible verse, right? So this is the problem with saying, well, the Bible clearly says, it doesn't clearly say anything about hell, really, because now I'm gonna give you all the Bible verses and say, well, everyone's gonna to get to heaven anyway, right? And so John 12, 32, I'll draw all men to myself. Uh, Acts 3, 21, the restoration of all things. Romans 5, 18 through, 20, uh, through 19, he's made all righteous. Um, Romans 11, 32, all to disobedience so he can have mercy on all. So he's, he's put, put everyone in disobedience so he can be merciful to everyone. Um, 1 uh, Corinthians 15, 22 through 28, all will be made alive. 2 Corinthians 5, 19, he reconciled the whole cosmos to himself or the whole world. Um, Philippians 2, 9 through 11, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Um, 1 Timothy 2, 4, God wills that all will be saved. Uh, 1 Timothy 4.10, God is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. That's a weird verse, right? Like, that's a really weird verse. God saves everyone, especially those that believe. Like, I don't know, it's just a funny verse. Um, Titus 2.11, bringing salvation to all men. Um, uh, Hebrews 2.9, Jesus tasted death for every man. 1 John 2.2, 2, not just our sins, but the sins of the whole world. 2 Peter 3, 9, God is patient, wishing nobody perishes, but all repents. Um, okay, so what's my point here? My point is not for you to grab a hold of either, any of those. My point is, if anything, for you to go away. I need to go away and think about this. Like, that's what I really want more than anything, is that you go, what do I believe? Like, what do I genuinely believe? Because what I find is a lot of people can give lip service to what they've heard, but I actually know a lot of people will say that and then go, but I don't know if I believe it. It sounds just messed up. Like a lot of people really struggle to believe eternal torment when they've encountered a loving God. They're like, can God really do that? Like, can you really punish people and, and forever, forever and eternity? And they go, well, maybe it's annihilationism. And maybe that's a good jump. Maybe that's a good jump. But I know some people that have been annihilationists and they jump back into eternal torment. They're like, you know what? No, it's just the Bible. I don't know. And I just, it seems to make sense. And I know people that have jumped into ultimate reconciliation and gone, you know what? No, I just think God is big enough to get what he wants. Um, but then I know people that have believed that for a long time and then go, ah, I don't know. I mean, the Bible's got a lot of stuff that talks about judgment and death and punishment and ceasing to exist. Like, it seems like there's something there. So I think I'm going to have to go back to annihilationism or eternal torment. And so I think it's not about telling you this is what to believe or this is even what I believe. It's about going, where are you? And where's God brought you right now? And what is leading you to a place of deeper relationship with God and being able to go out and make disciples of people? And, you know, some people go, well, if God saves everyone, ugh, there's no point. So, like, what's the point? I'm like, if that's where you draw the conclusion, then you've missed the point of the God saves everyone. So go out and save people. Like, just, I don't know, like, you've completely missed the point. Other people go, well, God has saved everyone. Oh, my gosh, i got to get out and tell every single person I've ever met, right? And so it leads them to more evangelism. Some people are really inspired to, to, to go and love the lost and, and feed the broken heart because they go, well, Jesus said, if you don't love the broken, you've not loved me. And I say, get away. I never knew you. Like that's a compelling argument for me to go love people. And so, you know, it's not that they all have good fruit or they all have bad fruit. You know, it's that they all have both depending on where your heart is and what's going on with you. And so again, it's not about just picking and choosing. It's about figuring out, okay, God, what is really going on? Like, what, what, do, you, what do I feel is, is, is compelling and is important? But my point above it all is that you would go, actually, it's not as important as people say it is. Because actually, what really matters is I'm getting people into relationship with Jesus. Because if I get people into relationship with Jesus, the afterlife doesn't matter. 
like what hell looks like, how hot it is, or how long it's going to be hot, or if it's hot at all, or you know, or where heaven is and how long it takes to get there, or if anyone gets there, or if some people get there. You know, we don't know all these things, and we can fixate on them, and we can try and figure it out, and we can read all the verses and go, well, maybe if I move that one here, and I could read that differently, because all of them you can twist and shape. Like each people that are massive proponents for this view or that view have twisted and shaken all the other ones. But then the people that hold on to those views go, well, you're twisting my scripture. Let me twist yours, you know? And so it's, it, you can do that for the rest of your life and you will just jump from one to the other, to the other, to the other. Um, what's important is, I think going back to that view that many have that, that would have led them to, a, well, maybe the afterlife is like this, but I think what we do know is that Jesus talks about a very real hell on earth and a very real heaven on earth. And he calls us not to make sure people go to heaven. He calls us to bring heaven to people. And I think if we fixate on that, like that negates the whole heaven and hell question. Like if we fi fixate on bringing heaven to earth, we don't have to worry about getting people to heaven. They've tasted it, they've experienced it, they've tasted and seen that God is good and they want it. And now we don't need to worry about what hell looks like because they're not going there. And, and I think um, I think it was uh, I think it was John ba Balthazar. I think he's a, a Catholic um, a, a theologian. He said, "Look, he wrote a whole book on hell, and it was all ups and downs, and has very different views. And, and Catholicism leaves room for all three of these. They don't have any problem with you believing any of these three. Um, so, in one sense, they're a lot more open than and a lot of Western denominations, which would probably be a lot more rigid. Some only allow." Uh, eternal torment, some allow eternal torment and annihilationism, and an even smaller group allow all three. But a lot of places in the West, in evangelical Christianity, will not allow you to believe ultimate reconciliation um, because you take away their stick to threaten people with. Um, and maybe the stick is a good thing. Again, I'm not saying it's not, but I think that oftentimes is the underlying thing of like, don't take away my, my, my decision moment. I have to make a decision for that reason. Um, but John Balthazar said, look, here's the thing that we can determine after his whole book, and he spent years and years studying hell. He says that there is a hell, we're pretty sure. That there's anyone in there, we have no idea. And he's like, that is all that we know. And that's all of his study, all of his teaching. He was like, that's what I've figured out. There's definitely a hell. I don't know if anyone's there. And I think, really, what's the point and spending hours and hours and hours and years and years and years arguing about this place when actually, yeah, it, it is, whatever it is, is, but we don't even know who's going there, how they're going there, what, you know, we don't know that for fact. And actually, all we do know is we can certainly figure out how people go to heaven. We know, bring them into a relationship. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that you would know my Father and know me. Oh, I can get people into eternal life like that. I just introduce them to Jesus. And so let me give you one more thing that will mess with your heads a little bit and then we'll, we'll stop here. Um, a lot of people will, will talk about, well, the problem with ultimate reconciliation is that after death, people are making decisions for Jesus, right? And so we all know that you have to make a decision before you die. You can't die and then make a decision. Um, but actually, that's not really found in the Bible. There's not any clear cut like, well, actually, you have to make this decision before you die. That's very much our tradition. Now, I would say it's probably a good idea, especially because we're not 100% sure on any of these theologies, it's probably a good idea to make the decision before you die. Just throwing that out there. But <laughs> it's not clear cut. It isn't said, well, actually, this is exactly how it works. Um, and in fact, there is a clear example of people getting saved after they die in the Bible. And um, you know, you look at uh, Peter, Jesus descends into the depths, into this place, Shoal, actually, in, into Hades, it says. Um, so um, he descends into hell and he preaches the gospel to the disobedient. So we often think, well, he went to hell, to the place of the dead. So Hades is not the same words hell used um, throughout the scriptures. It's a different word used as the, 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 the place of the dead. It's like a waiting place. It's like, almost like the waiting room kind of thing. Um, and, and a lot of times, you know, this, this understanding of hell progressively moving into heaven. This is where Catholicism started to get their idea of a purgatory. So like you kind of progress through or whatever. And this is kind of uh, a lot of that roots all the way back into this understanding of a place of a dead where you're not actually really 
allocated yet. You don't go to hell or to heaven. You're kind of in this place of like nothingness. But that's the kind of uh, concept that's, that Peter's drawing on in this concept of Jesus descends to this place of the dead and he preaches to the disobedient. He doesn't preach. I think oftentimes we think, oh yeah, he went down to get like David and Abraham and all the people that died before Jesus. Doesn't mention them. I don't know what they were. I don't know if he just left them there. I don't think so. Um, or if they were already in heaven or they just automatically didn't need preached to or whatever. But he says he preached to the disobedient and they were saved. And you're like, oh, interesting. Now, I'm not saying that that makes a precedent that God always gives people after they die a chance, but he certainly did once. And also when you take time out of the equation, maybe we were there, right? Maybe, <laughs> maybe my neighbor who's disobedient, who doesn't accept Jesus was there in the place of disobedience after death, after, outside of time. Or, you know, so I don't know. I don't know any of these things, but I'm just saying, let's not be rigid um, with things we, we, we can't be rigid about. You know what we can be rigid about? Jesus told us to go bring heaven to earth, to love the broken, to love the poor, to love the lost, to have relationship with him, you know, to experience the fullness of what it is to live in union with him. That's stuff that we have again and again and again, all the way through scripture, it says, do this, do this, do this. Like, embrace me, walk with me, change the world around you for a better place to look like heaven. That we have clear cut night and day. Tick this box so you don't go to heaven. Tick this box so you don't go to hell. It's a lot less clear. I mean, even if you talk about salvation, we like to think even salvation is lined out in our Bible, but it doesn't talk about a sinner's prayer or any of the things that we kind of associate with being saved these days. I mean, in the Bible, there's, there's a guy, right? You imagine this. Jesus is in a room with a bunch of people. All of a sudden, there's stuff falling from the roof. And you're like, what the heck's going on up there? And so he's preaching on this dust and bits. And all of a sudden, there's a giant hole. The ceiling kind of falls in. And a bunch of guys start lowering a man on a mattress into the room. And he's like what's going on, right? I mean, you'd be like, what is happening, right? And they go, oh, we couldn't get in the front door, so we just broke this guy's roof, right? Poor guy, never asked Jesus to preach at your house, right? People are gonna break your roof. Um, we lowered him through the roof so you could pray for him and get him healed. And he's like, this is incredible, right? This is Jesus' response. I bet the guy, Steve or whoever it was, that was like, this is my house, this is not incredible. Who's paying for my roof, right? But he goes, this is amazing, I love this, I love it. He says, you guys, your faith has saved him. Can you imagine we did that at church? Can you imagine you brought your friend to church and your pastor went, whoa, you brought him? Wow, your faith has saved him. That would not go well in a church service, right? I mean, that is not doctrine. That is not theology. And, and again, I'm not saying that we make that into a theology. We're not saying that that's how people get saved. But what I'm saying is the Bible is full of examples of like, I mean, one person gets saved and then he goes and his whole family is baptized. And it's like, well, did they really all like, make a decision on the spot? Like, I mean, what does that look like, right? Because I know people that get saved and they go home to their family and their family's like, what? Oh, yeah, okay, cool, I guess, right? They're not like, whoa, yes, boom, I've just had the same amazing encounter as you. So there's a lot of stuff throughout the scriptures where we go, well, it's not as clear cut as they sat and knelt down and they said a prayer and they made a decision in their heart and they accepted Jesus into their heart. Or, I don't know how clear cut that all is. And I'm not saying that to say, oh, we should be uncertain of our salvation. Or I'm not saying that to say, ah, whatever, who cares? I'm just saying, what do we really know? It's about relationship with Jesus. So much less than getting people to tick a box and say a prayer, let's get them in relationship. And we don't care what happens after that. Like the, the heaven or hell or whatever it looks like is irrelevant if people are in relationship <laughs> with God. It just doesn't matter. I think we should stop there or if we should say anything else. Um, oh yeah, we should really stop there. Gosh, I didn't realize the time. Um, yeah, I just think, and I'm not saying this to mess with all your theologies and throw it out. And, and please do not listen to this and go, oh, I'll just be a Christian universalist because that's the nicest one. Because we have a nice God. In Kingsway, we have a nice God. He's a good guy. I mean, right? Compared to all the other uh, gods that are out there in Christianity, right? Because we all worship the same gods, but he looks very different depending on which church you end up at. Um, we have a pretty dang good God. I mean, he is like amazing, right? We, we, and I'm not saying we've got it right because we've got a lot of growing and a lot of learning. If, like, I think the, the more you learn, the more you realize, gosh, this is probably going to change in 10 minutes anyway, right? You, you just start going everything I know ends up being wrong and it's way better than I thought. So even though I'm like, wow, this is the most amazing thing ever, I know ah, a year from now, I'm gonna be like, what an idiot, I believe that, you know? And so it's probably even better. But 
we have this concept of a God that is so good. He is so gracious. He's so loving. He's so accepting. He's so forgiving. And so it's easy to go, well, on the surface, that looks like the most loving. That looks like the most gracious. I'll just go with that. And I'm not saying that. Like, don't choose any of those three lightheartedly. Um, and whatever you do, whenever you do choose them, have your arms wide open when you hold your theology because God might go, actually, there's nothing like that. He might take it right out of your hands and go, no. And I tell you what, if you've got your theology like this, you're going to end up fighting with God and that's just not a good idea because you lose and you end up with a limp like Jacob or whatever, you know? Um, so I think with certain things like that, we hold our theology lightly. We write it in pencil and we have an eraser nearby because it's probably better than we even think. Um, and even if it doesn't look better, it's better somehow, right? And so even if we pick one, we're like, well, that's clearly the best. And then we go, well, actually, God's leading me to think, actually, it's this one. That is better, whatever that means. Um, but make the main thing the main thing. I think that's it, you know? If this, whatever your theology is on heaven and hell, if it causes you to have less of a relationship with God, if it causes you to have less of a desire to preach the gospel, to reach people, to bring people into relationship, then put it to the side. It doesn't matter. Right? I mean, if you're getting confused about hell and it's causing you to not love people, put it to the side and love people. Um, I think it's just, it's not a doctrine that we need to worry about if we're focusing on the right thing, bringing heaven to earth, bringing people out of a real hell now into a real heaven today. Thank you for listening to the iDestiny podcast. For further information, check out www.idestiny.org.uk.